This is episode 46 of Off Script with Trish Glose, intimate interviews with interesting people. And in front of my mic today, interesting doesn't quite cut it. Jeff Shepard of Lilybell Farms and chocolates. You're an artist. You're a musician. You make really yummy things for people. Good morning. <laughs> Come on. That was a good intro. That was an excellent intro. That was, that was yeah, that was aggrandizing. I really liked it. You know, we just did a story a few weeks ago for Valentine's Day. Yeah. I had the most fun. So did my interactive producer. I think she did not stop talking about you for like two days. <laughs> it was just, it was fun. Well, was you guys got in the kitchen, so. We you did. Know. Hairnets and all. Yeah. Got into the kitchen. Um, but then at that point, I was like, hey, you want to do this podcast with me? And you're like, yeah, can I bring my guitar? I did. Well, because, you know. It's here, folks. <laughs> the guitar is here. Anybody who's been to our shop knows that Lily Bell's all about music and mm-hmm. half the music is me playing. Mm-hmm. You know, I play every single day in that kitchen. It's just how we get things done. I like it. Yeah. Do um, we're gonna we're gonna talk a lot about your kitchen, but do the other folks who work in your kitchen do any of them play instruments? None of them. None of them. No. Just you. Just me. Okay. And it's yeah. It's it's kind of a chalk tatorship. You know, it's <laughs> <laughs> this is not a chalk mockery. It's, it's not a chalk mockery. <laughs> it's not. I, <laughs> Those are made-up words. Okay, uh, we're going to talk a lot about uh, the dictatorship at <laughs> No, we're not. Uh, where are you from originally, Jeff Shepard? I am from Los Angeles, California. Wow, West Coast boy. All the way. All the way. Um, you were born when? I was born in Glendale, California in 1962. 1962. What a decade. I guess, yeah. I was a kid. Right. You know, people like, all these great upheavals in the late 60s. I'm like, I was learning to tie my shoes. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I was know? learning how to wipe my hiney right. by myself. <laughs> so did you grow up with siblings? No. Just you? I'm an only child. Okay. What did your parents do? My parents both worked for, what do we call it, loosely called the, the, the military industrial complex. Whoa. So my mom worked for Bendix and my dad worked for Lockheed. Okay. So, you know, my dad built airplanes and my mom built, I don't know what they, sauna buoys and what do they call those? Oh yeah, torpedoes. Wow. (laughs) That's what Bendix did. Wow. Okay. So growing up in LA, outside of LA, in that vicinity Mm -hmm. in the 60s, what was your childhood like? Very middle class upbringing, Mm -hmm. you know, front lawn, back lawn. What else? I mean, all that stuff. Little League, football, Pop Warner, all that kind of stuff. My okay. dad was like the perennial coach. So I was always coach's son. Oh, right? coach. Every team I ever played on. Okay. What did he coach? Everything? All or? of it. Yeah. Football, baseball, basketball, all that kind of stuff. Even okay. after I got older and stopped doing it, he still continued to mm-hmm. teach kids how to play baseball. What teams were you on as a youngster? Uh, I don't even know the names of those teams. I mean, no, no, no. Like, did you play football? Did you play basketball? Yes, I did all, all of those. Them. Okay. All of them. Yeah, I, I played. I really liked baseball, so I got really good at that. Mm-hmm. And uh, got up into it and did it in high school a little bit. Um, and then in high school, I discovered, I discovered theater. Yes. And, and it was kind of like, I'd rather do that because... Mm-hmm. If you go to the theater classes and you go to audition for plays, there's girls there, but there's no girls on the <laughs> baseball field, you know. So, 
it was kind of a natural progression. Oh. You know, it's like, oh, sorry, Dad, I just tried out for a play and got in. I can't do this. I you love know? that thinking. So in high school, and we're, this is high school in the 70s. Yes. Uh, still in Southern California? Yes. Uh, okay. I grew up in a place called, uh, it was called Saugus, and then they named it Canyon Country. It just kept expanding, and now the whole city is incorporated and called Santa Clarita. Oh, well, okay, there you go. Yeah. Fast. That grew fast. Yeah, it grew real fast. Okay. I haven't been back there in ages, but, mm -hmm. you know, I know it's a city now. Mm -hmm. like, it probably shocked the hell out of you. No, I don't want to go anywhere near it. No. no I ran away at, like, 18. Okay. Like, eh. mm. So you were a theater nerd in high school. Very much so. Very much so. I wanted to be an actor. It's what I studied. It's what I did. I did it all through high school. Mm. And then to pick a college, I picked the most outrageous college I could find, which was CalArts. Okay. Which is a, a, a theater. Well, it's, it's CalArts. It's just outside of Los Angeles. It's actually okay. local for me. And I remember as a kid when they built this college, right? And I always wanted to go there. But they didn't base entrance on anything that you did in school. So it was audition only. It was kind of like Juilliard on the mm. East Coast. CalArts is for the West Coast. So they had a theater school, a, fi a film school, a dance school, a music school, and uh, a film school all under one roof. And it was five schools under one roof. That sounds awesome. It's a great place. Okay. I mean, there's- And you got in. I got in, I got in at 17. Wow. And a lot of the freshman class in 1980 were like 23, 24, people who'd already grown up a little bit. You know, there wasn't like, it wasn't just a bunch of teenagers. Mm -hmm. It's audition, so it could be any age as a freshman at CalArts. Was that a little- Intimidating. Thank you. Yeah. yeah a little intimidating. Yeah. 17, and you're with essentially young adults. Yeah. Yeah, there weren't a whole lot of us 17-year-olds. There was only a couple of us. Right. Yeah. Um, I was a theater nerd okay. in, in high school and college. There's nothing like, and then I did community theater too, there's nothing like the rehearsals, when rehearsals start, yeah. and you're in the dark theater, and you're plotting out where you're supposed to stand and move and the motivation behind it. I miss that so much. That stuff is fun. It's so fun. I've done it. I've gone off and done community theater in mm -hmm. my adult life and, you know, dabbled in and out and did radio for a few years. And Would you consider doing community theater now? Um, I can't imagine. Maybe. You know, got any parts for long hairs? <laughs> <laughs> never say never, right? <laughs> so how long were you at CalArts? I was only at CalArts for two years. Okay. Um, at the time, I had an agent. And, wow. Oh, yeah. No, I was moving. I was, I was like really young and skinny and talented, apparently. And I had this agent who was like, you know, you'd do better if you came down to like the west side of Los Angeles, got yourself a job at night and took acting classes during the day and made yourself available for auditions. Interesting. Which I did. I dropped out and went down to Santa Monica and got an apartment with a friend. And, and that's what you did. Got a job in a restaurant and because I'd already done like fast food and all kinds of stupid things in restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I got, a, actually I got taken under this guy's wing in this really tiny restaurant, really exclusive on the west side. And we didn't have a budget. We didn't have anything. It was just me and him and a dishwasher and occasionally a salad guy on the weekends. And we just had no budget. So he could cook whatever he wanted. Wow. And he sent me to classes. He's like, well, you need to get your chops up. So let's go take some classes. And this guy was great. I mean, it was just that freewheeling time in the early 80s, and we could do whatever we wanted. And uh, he got me hooked on fine food, especially fine Italian dining at that time. And I really fell in love with preparing food from scratch. Okay. Uh, and he turned the dessert tray over to me, and I was probably 19 years old, and I was 
making chocolate desserts. I mean, I started playing with chocolate when I was still a teenager. Interesting. Yeah. So were your passions or your loves shifting at this point? They did. Okay. They, I actually got my first piece of press. Like I got a write up in the LA Times when I was 20 years old. No way. For my desserts. Wow. So, you know. Well, what was, kind of desserts were you making at this point? I think we were famous for like a white chocolate mousse and, mm-hmm. and uh, a couple other things, uh, Sicilian cakes and stuff like that that we were doing from scratch. And they were just really good, you know. You didn't so. have any necessarily training. No, no. One of the classes the guy sent me to, though, this is this is like my my, my six degrees of separation with no more separation, <laughs> was one of the classes I took that, you know, he, we went to a place called uh, Ma Cuisine, which had cooking classes. And it was an excerpt of a radio of a, a restaurant called Ma Maison mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. And so I took chocolate and dessert classes with their pastry chef. And their pastry chef was this young Austrian guy named Wolfgang Puck. Oh, stop it. Yeah. That's who taught me to play with chocolate. No way. Yeah. Yeah. I was just a kid and he wasn't that much older, you know. Right. He was in his late 20s. Was he Wolfgang at this point? No. This is pre-Spagos. This is pre-all that stuff. Wow. Yeah, his English was atrocious. You know, it was he was well, great. Nothing against Wolfgang. His English is still a bit atrocious. Yeah, I know. But in I the know. best way. Yeah. I love listening to him talk. He's, he's found my shop. He's been there. Really? Yeah. I love the way he says vegetables. Vegetables. Yeah. The vegetables. Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've had my finger in this, like, fine dining thing and playing with desserts for 30 years. That's insane to think about. So at what point do... You're making desserts. Do you leave? Do you go do something different? Or are you just hanging out at this restaurant for a while? I stayed at that restaurant for two years, uh-huh. which is probably the longest I ever stayed at any restaurant before or after. You know, I became really good at what I did. And then that fell apart like all restaurants do. Right. And uh, I, I went on to other restaurants. I went on to other kitchens. It fell apart. The restaurant fell apart? Oh, no. Just the relationship with the guy. Oh, you know, okay. Yeah. You know. I know how that goes. Yeah. And so you moved on to other restaurants. Yeah, and I stayed in the restaurant industry for a very, very long time. Doing desserts? Uh, Everything. I learned everything. I mean, I worked my way up to being an executive chef at, you know, pretty decent-sized restaurants, cranking out 500, 600 plates. Wow, I didn't know know that about you. Yeah, I spent a long time hustling plates, you know, coming home with blisters and burns. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was really good at it. Yeah, And I made a career out of it. Right. I could go anywhere, right? It's a a great craft to learn if you want to travel. If you want to experience things and if you want to settle down and open your own restaurant, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. It's also a nasty business. It, it's, yeah. It's yeah. hard. It's a lot of hard work. It's really hard. It'll take a toll on you. And mm-hmm. the 80s were not, a, I mean, it was a fun time. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like a lot of my compatriots, I'm lucky to be alive. Right. Right. You know? I think um, looking, you know, all the cooking shows, like, for instance, Chef's Table on Netflix and all of these beautiful shows that sort of, glorify and make really show the glamour of all of it. It's not glamorous. No. It's a it's hard work. It's a nasty business. It's hot. It's long. You you know, you're at work at noon, you're off at midnight, mm-hmm. you know, and you can't come down real fast. So you're right. going to party, you know, you're going to go drink it. There's a lot of drugs and alcohol in this business too. Certainly were in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wink wink. <laughs> So when did you decide to get out of the restaurant business? Ah, uh, you know, it was weird. I, I, I stayed in it and used it as a job and traveled around. And I think I got out of it probably about, I want to say 94. Okay. I'd moved to Hawaii in 92. I fought, the, the guy that ran that restaurant 
that I was at mm -hmm. in Santa Monica. I hadn't seen him in years and years and years. And he found me. At the time, I was in Northern California, working as a chef, going to junior college again, going back, I'm 27, I'm going to go get a degree of some form. Right. And I'm going to do this thing. And he got a hold of me through my mom, and she's like, this guy's trying to get a hold of you. And I said, okay, give me the number. And he invited me over to be the executive chef of a restaurant in Hanalei on Kauai. That doesn't suck. No, that didn't suck at all. <laughs> I bought a one-way ticket. <laughs> <laughs> That's good for you. Yeah. What were you doing for him there? Uh, I took over a restaurant. I mean, he was the general manager of a restaurant on the beach, and I took it over as the chef. And it was a nightmare. I mean, it was absolutely the worst restaurant I've oh, ever worked really? in my life. How so? Oh, God. Oh, if you've never worked in a town where it revolves around the surf and you don't surf, mm -hmm. your staff doesn't show up if the surf gets over 10 feet. Are you kidding? No, no. They're going to be late. They're not coming. There's just too many good waves to catch. Well, they don't you know? care. And everybody's stoned and they're pounded by the surf too much. And it was almost, it became one of those, if you can't beat them, join them. So I learned how to surf there, mm -hmm. you know, because, well, I can't just sit on the beach. I got to get on a board and right. do that. You know? So you learned how to surf. I learned how to surf. Okay. And so but I was at that restaurant for about, I uh, say about eight months. And I, we just had it. The guy who owned it was just a complete shyster. I mean, he was, he was doing the filthiest, nastiest things with food I've ever seen in my life and forcing people to do things like that. And I just threw in the towel. I'm like, I can't work here. I'm afraid to ask, like what? Don't, oh God. Okay. Maybe, give me like one, maybe one or two examples. One. Okay, one. There's only one. There's okay. one that made me take my apron off and give him the finger, Yes. right? It's like, I'm out of here. Okay, what was it? I came into work, uh, lunch rush was just finishing. I'm coming in to prep dinner and I go by the dishwashing station and there's Clint washing dishes. And I look and there's this Folgers coffee can sitting there and I'm watching him empty a bus tub and he reaches into a bus tub and there's this, there's this plate sitting there, probably a burger set, right? And there's that lettuce, tomato, onion stack, right? You put right. it on the side of a right. burger for people to put on. And they hadn't used it. And I saw him pick up the whole thing and set it inside that coffee can. And I looked in the coffee can and there was a whole stack of those. I go, what the f are you doing? And he goes, uh, Steve told me to save them if they didn't eat them and we could reuse them. Ew. Ew. That's disgusting. I lost it. I just lost it. I mean, I just, oh, I'm quitting. I'm out of here. This is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. And you were gone. And Ap I was gone. Apron here. Done. I'm done. Out. And I went up to the hotel, which is a big resort on the hill, and uh, applied for a job as a dishwasher. I didn't want any responsibilities. Mm. I was like, I'm done. I'm done with this. Mm -hmm. And of course, the head chef at the hotel is like, uh, your resume says you should be on my line. And I'm like, I don't want to think. No. And I heard you pay $15 an hour to dishwashers and we can eat whatever we want and we never finish. Because you can't finish in a hotel. There's always a banquet. There's always these things. So just dishes yeah. keep coming for eight hours. Yeah. And then you tag team the next guy because right. you'll never finish. And it was a great job mm -hmm. for about three weeks. <laughs> Dishwashing <laughs> is very zen. It was very zen. I could, I could wear headphones yeah. and just be in that tank and do my thing. And it was a nice little break. Yeah. And then... Uh, Hurricane Aniki hit the island. Oh, man. Yeah, and wiped it out. Oh, I mean, just destroyed no. the island of Kauai. This was in? 92. 92. Yep, there was a Force 5 hurricane that hit that island, and erased it. It erased the hotel. It erased my house. It erased everything. It was just a disaster on epic scale. At this point, were you like, it's time to go home? Or no, did, did because, stick around? like, all kinds of things were going on during that period. Mm -hmm. I had fallen in love with somebody. You know, this hostess we had at the other restaurant okay. that we hired, and okay. she was really cute. I really liked her. 
and we were dating and she's the one who was working at the hotel and said, hey, you know, we need dishwashers if you want to come up. And oh, I'm like, oh, okay. okay. And so we were dating and uh, uh, on, on my birthday, which is September the 8th, she had answered my question that I'd asked her a month earlier, which was, will you marry me? Okay. And then, don't you have to answer me now, just think about it. Right. And then she answered me on my 30th birthday and said, yes. And then 72 hours later, we had a Force 5 hurricane. Oh, man. Yeah, it's the beginning of a stormy relationship kind of pun <laughs> thing. Ba-boom. Right. But we had time, you know. It was, it, right. was that, it was that moment where we could, I mean, I gave her the option, we can not do this, we can leave, we can stay. Mm-hmm. And we both chose to stay. Okay. You know, we're going to get married in nine months on that beach where my little house was. Perfect. Was. Well, it was still there. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, blue tarps for a roof for a while. And wow. What a mess. <laughs> yeah. So you guys, what, during this time? I mean, you find other work or? Uh, I pounded nails. I did demolition work for almost a year. I mean, because ins- it just wiped out houses and houses were so damaged that they were just paying people cash, the insurance companies, to come mm-hmm. in and just tear the house down. Right. You know, so I worked with, you know, a 10-pound sledgehammer and a chainsaw on million-dollar homes for a while. Goodness, a little and, different from the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, it was refreshing. I bet. Yeah, there was. I my my claim to fame was I got to push a Steinway piano that had been completely ruined by the water out of a second-story balcony because <gasps> the porch was gone and there was no way to remove this piano, so we just shoved it out the window. And it the was trash. Oh, it was gone. Oh yeah, it was just swollen and rain soaked. Oh, and... that kind of hurts my heart a little bit. No, oh, it was painful. Such a beautiful instrument. Right, right, and it was just ruined. Hurricanes are devastating. They're they are brutal. Every time I see one, I, I, I get this thing, mm-hmm. and I always pay attention. I'm like, I know what they're going through. Yeah. You I know? lived in South Carolina when Hurricane Hugo hit. That's a big one. In the 90s. Yeah. And the devastation, and you can still see remnants of that storm today, sure. which is insane to me. Sure. Yeah, hurricanes are nasty. Yeah. I mean, we'll look at Katrina. Right, right. Every time I see one, my heart just breaks. I'm just like, Same. oh, God, I know what they're going through. Yeah. Uh-oh. And there's nothing you can do no. to just put one foot in front of the other and start cleaning up the damage. And that's what we did. You yeah. know, and we stayed and, and doing that because the island just, you know, the population left. I mean, people left. Mm-hmm. You know, once we got, it took about three weeks to get all the tourists off the island. And then it was down to that. And anybody who had a family sent their wives and children off the island to relatives if they had them. Really? Oh, there was no power. We didn't have power for mm, two months. Wow. No. Yeah. That's no insane. lights, no night lights. Yeah. So you guys stay there. You get married on the beach. We did. Nine months later, we got married on the beach. I love it. And we did things. I mean, Belle waited tables for a long time, and and I went back into cooking. I don't know, a year and a half later, something like that. We opened a. I helped some friends open a burger stand in Hanalei, mm-hmm. and that was a great job. It's another one of those I don't want to think as a chef anymore. Right. So I opened a place called Bubba's in Hanalei. I love it. And that was. I mean, the guy asked me, he's like, uh, you have more cooking experience than most of my employees have years on the earth. Why would you want to work here? I go, I want to think. Nice. I just want to shovel. Right, you know? right. And he's like, mm, all right. And he goes, I'm going to ask you one more question. This is the most crucial question. And if you answer it correctly, I'll give you a job. I was like, okay. Will you drink Budweiser out of a can? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, only if you're paying me. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you're hired. Get an apron. Get back here. Because that was part of the shtick. You had to actually drink on the job. Shut you, up. You had to drink on the job. That just sounds stupid. Well, it was stupid, but it was Bubba's. You know, it was Bubba's. It <laughs> the was name we, was Bubba's. We cheat tourists, drunks, and attorneys. That was the t-shirt, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
And so we'd, he'd ring a bell, and then the whole staff would have to crack a Budweiser and pound it, you know, like twice was, a day. When was the last time you had a Budweiser from a can? At working at Bubba's. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Pretty much. Nothing against Budweiser, but gross. Uh, hey, I'm just saying, man. That was, that's a Bubba thing. A Bubba's. Yeah. Bubba's. What did the t-shirt say again? We cheat tourists, drunks, and attorneys. <laughs> well, it used to, when he first opened, he did a thing that said, we cheat tourists and drunks. And then he got sued by a mm. bar in San Francisco because that was their t-shirt. He didn't know. And so there were letters from lawyers going back and forth. So they just Ugh. changed it to tourist drunks and attorneys. There you go. And Done. ran with it. Yeah, it was smart. Right. No, I get it. Sold a million of them. Beautiful. At what point do you get tired of of being in Hawaii? Never never. When when would you when did you guys decide to come back to the states? You and Belle. Belle and I decided to come back when she could not get into a master's program at the University of Hawaii. Mm -hmm. She wanted her master's in public health. She really did. I mean, she's a public health kind of person. It's what she does. Mm -hmm. And she applied several times, even though she was working for the Department of Health on Kauai, running several health programs on Kauai, especially much needed stuff like anonymous HIV testing and needle exchange programs. Awesome. And, yeah, all kinds of HIV work. Very she, important work. Really important work. But she couldn't get into the master's program at the University of Hawaii. Any reason why? Uh, we came away with the conclusion that her last name didn't end in a vowel. Okay. As, okay. Know, no, yeah. There's, so a, there's a quota on white chicks. You know, I don't know. And they had filled it. I guess. I mean, there was just never really an explanation. Her work in the field was good enough to do it, and she was already working for a Department of Health county of Kauai. Mm -hmm. So... She I mean, could you say because she wasn't native, they were like, no? I, well, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. It's just, there's a mm -hmm. little of that going on over there. Sure, mm -hmm. there was. Right, know. right. It was an interesting time. And I would, we had exhausted all the fun that we could have there. Um, after Bubba's, when, when that was going on, I got this opportunity to buy a house. And we bought a house that was actually really cheap, post-hurricane. And it was a 100-year-old Hongwanji, which is a... A Buddhist meeting hall, like a Buddhist temple Ooh. that was built in like 1901 or something. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. And we bought it and turned it into a bed and breakfast. I mean, it's kind of what it was when we bought it. Mm -hmm. It had already been trying to do that, mm -hmm. but then we promoted it as such. And in 95, the nascent early internet, we were like Kauai's only bed and breakfast on the internet. And so uh, brilliant. I ran a bed and breakfast for five years. I get up in the morning, I cook six breakfasts, gourmet breakfasts. I clean a room if they left, and then I go surfing and fishing all day. It was the best life your, ever. Your life so far to this point. Ever. It was awesome. I bet. Then we spawned. We've been oh, married Jeff. about five years, and we said, okay, if we stay together five years, let's do five-year contracts. Let's, let's say we're married forever. Let's just do five years at a time. Okay. Right? So five years. You want to have kids? Yes. Okay, boom. She's pregnant. We're going to have kids. So by the time oh, daughter, you breeders. I know. And by the time <laughs> Lily rolled around, it was like, oh, God, we're trying to raise a baby in a bed and breakfast that has rice paper doors. Oh, <laughs> right? oh yeah. It was a beautiful house. But there was a crying baby upstairs. Yeah, you know, there yeah. was this. There were, by the time she was a toddler, she was opening those rice doors to right. go into people's rooms. Hey, good yeah. morning. Yeah, rifling through their luggage. You know. Daddy has breakfast. Right, right. <laughs> What's this? So, you know, after she was growing up, by the time she was like one, one and a half, we're like, we got to sell this thing. We got to get out of this. Okay. You know, and we did. So it you, took a while. Right. And we sold a bed and breakfast at the same time she was applying off island for 
master's work. We knew if we sold mm -hmm. the bed and breakfast, we would leave the island. Okay. We knew it. And you did. And we did. Where'd you go? Here. Southern Oregon. Well, that's where she's from. Belle's from here. Belle's, she went to Ashland High and her parents lived in Ashland. And so we kind of set up camp in Ashland mm -hmm. for about nine months and started looking at property. And Okay. Did she go to SOU for masters no. or? She no? went to University of Washington. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because they have an extension program. So she could live anywhere in the Northwest, and she only had to spend like two weeks every summer on campus. That sounds brilliant. The rest was online. That's amazing. Uh, the three-year program. Okay. She did it. And so, while she was doing that, I had to find something to do. Which was? Turned out to be making chocolate. Okay. So by the time she got her master's, I had started Lily Bell Farms. as nascent, you know, it was like farmer's market, thinking about an internet website. Right. Still real small. Well, you guys moved, when you mo left Hawaii, you moved where first? Jacksonville? No, we moved to Ashland, Ashland and just rented a house. Okay. Right? And then we went looking for property because selling a bed and breakfast in Hawaii made us a lot of money. Okay. And we had to buy something. You needed some property. Yeah. You started growing berries first, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the berries came before the chocolate. Correct. I really thought I was going to be like that gentleman farmer. You know, I, just, I don't know what that is. <laughs> Sounds kind of dirty. I don't know I, why. I, I, you know, I just, I found this old place and I Hello, liked it. I am the gentleman farmer. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Okay. So you find some property in Jayville and you're, you're growing berries. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it had berries on it. And then, oh, okay. But it, it had a history of being a berry farm, like much more. That's than convenient. What the people I bought it from had. And so I just dumped into it with both feet and read every book I could find mm -hmm. and plowed up the back fields and plowed up the terraces and planted everything. Is there anything specific about growing berries that's different from maybe growing anything else? They seem very delicate. They, they're temperamental, mm -hmm. you know, they'll, they'll die. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they'll certainly die. You'll certainly put in like hundreds of dollars worth of drip systems and canes and yeah. two years later something will happen and you'll be like, they're dying. Where'd my berries go? <laughs> what did I do wrong? <laughs> so you have, but yours are fairly successful. Yeah. Yeah, I was growing a lot of fruit. So I was like, okay, I got to do the farmer's market, you know, especially in the summer when we harvest. Mm -hmm. And I looked around and it was like, okay, $3 a pint is one way to make a living. But Maybe. You know, <laughs> maybe. But can I cook things with these? So, I mean, I started out when I did Lily Bell Farms at the farmer's market, I started making jams and jellies, mm -hmm. you know, like raspberry balsamic preserves. And so good. Strawberry preserves. And I had all this fruit. And then I thought, well, God, I got to do even more with these things. And I made some raspberry truffles, you know, with fresh raspberry puree. Mm -hmm. I took them to the farmer's market. People really liked them. It's like, oh, well, I should do some other flavors. You know, let's, let's make some orange ones and maybe a coffee bean and... I had, a I had a black pepper truffle years earlier that I thought was just fantastic, that just slight infusion of black pepper and dark chocolate. So those were my flavors at the farmer's market. And people really liked it. So I just kept pushing it. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you make a box of fancy chocolates? There's something really kind of cool about opening the lid on a box of fancy chocolates. Amen. Right? And, it, and I, how do you do that? So I taught myself how to do it. I got a, a home-based kitchen license at our farm in Jacksonville and got a license to produce food in my home kitchen. And wow. I taught myself how to make chocolates. And this was a little bit of a nod back to the days when you were making desserts. Absolutely, absolutely. I, there's, there's all kinds of little niches. I mean, we talked about that in that other interview we had. Right. Like in the mid, mid to late 80s, while I was still like maybe working as a line cook at the Calistoga Inn in Northern California, I had become somewhat of a savage deadhead and then 
as that scene started to explode, I wanted to capitalize on it to finance my concerts. Right. So I decided to teach myself how to make tie-dyes. That was one of my questions in, yeah. my, in my book, was the whole tie-dye thing and the connection with Grateful Dead. Well, I'm a deadhead. You are a deadhead. Oh, yeah, I always will be. When did your love affair begin with the dead? Probably in the early 80s. Okay. I mean, I really got latched on by 85, like like hooked, like I want to see every show that I can. You were, what, early 20s in the 80s? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so I just kept, it was one of those things. And then I started to lose jobs over them. You know, I'm like one of those deadheads where it's like, I, I got to have that week between Christmas and New Year's off because mm -hmm. they're going to play four or five shows and I got to go to all of them. You need to be at every I need to be in Oakland for all of these, right? Mm -hmm. And people are, you can't have those days off. I go, it's June. I'm telling you now. Right. And then that would roll around and they'd be like, you can't have those days off. So and you I'm just like, quit. Here's my apron. Wow. Yeah. But so I'm going to these shows. Right. Because of that, though, you had to figure out a way, how am I going to finance myself right. in order to get to all of these shows? Right. And, and you know, tie-dye was starting to come along, and, and the technique was getting better. And I bought a bunch of dyes, and I bought a bunch of blanks, and I taught myself how to do it. And I uh, started taking them to shows, like a trunk full of stuff, and you could make a couple grand, you know, in two days. Wow. If your shirts were good, people would buy them. You know, $15, $20 a piece, you're making yeah. money, you know. So you'd spend some money and then sell it all, and you'd make money. And then you could go back and give your landlord two months' rent in advance. You know, here, leave me alone for a while. There are people who are own businesses, maybe on Wall Street, who are living on a commune, whatever, who have one of your t-shirts and have hung on to them because they bought it at a dead show. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. That's so awesome. I guarantee it. <laughs> well, all, the, all the concert t-shirts that I've ever purchased, I still have them. I can't get rid of them. Oh, I don't. Because they're, they're special. It marks a time in your life. Four sizes ago. I don't have any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> life has taken its toll, girlfriend. <laughs> uh, how long did you do tie-dye t-shirts? I did shirts from, I want to say as a business from 86 to 90, about 91. Okay. Yeah. Just, and it was a side, but at one point it became a full-time job. Mm -hmm. I was selling shirts and outside of the Oakland Auditorium and I, this guy came up and he really liked what I did because I did stuff that other people didn't do. I was trying to make my niche. Sure. And he really liked that, about six patterns that I would do with airbrush embellishments. Of course. And, and he loved them. And this guy was so pushy. He was just like, he was like, those are beautiful. I, wanna, I want one of each of those designs. <laughs> I'm like, well, okay, they're $15 a piece. No, you don't understand. I want you to give them to me. Well, what the hell would I do that for, you crazy old hippie? Give you. He goes, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take these and I'm going to take them to the pipe and tobacco shop owner's trade show next week in Chicago. And I'm going to represent you to my friends who own all these pipe and tobacco shops. And I'm like, head shops. Uh-huh. And he's like, yeah. And he goes, and I'll take 10% of the sale. I'm like, well, that's worth six shirts. Go ahead. And this guy called me and put me in 28 stores. Wow. He called me in two weeks and all, I mean, I just started tie-dye full time. That's all I could do to keep up with what he'd ordered. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of shirts. Jeez. Well, that, that financed a few shows. And that guy became a great friend. I mean, he mm -hmm. was just this crazy guy that, you know, I didn't know who he was when I met him. I found out later. I mean, mm -hmm. it was Jack. Jack. <laughs> Jack. Uh, but his name was Jack Herrera. And he published a book called The Emperor Wears No Clothes, and I think it's one of the most popular strains of marijuana on the planet right now. Okay. He has his own strain named after him now. That's insane. He passed away. Aw. But I Jack was, was a say, good friend. I was going to say hi to Jack. Every time I see things from, like, every time I see somebody, oh, I've got some Jack Herrera weed, I'm like, 
That's, that's my, my buddy. Friend. That's crazy. <laughs> that's my friend. That's, do you do you consider yourself or did you consider yourself a hippie? Do you think you're a hippie now? Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What does the word hippie mean to you? I don't you? know. I mean, they had the death of the hippie march in 1967 and they hate. What does it mean? Right. You know, for me it's just, you know, what's so funny about peace, love and understanding. Right. You know, that's that's it. Yeah. You know, we're, we dance to the beat of several drummers at one time. Mm-hmm. We carve our own little thing, but it's really about communication and not hate, love over hate, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. Coexisting. Yeah, all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I can't describe it. I'm a feral hippie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a feral <laughs> hippie. <laughs> I think that's going in your title. Uh, yes. It's... it's Episode 46, the first I, one, I'm a just feral as com- hippie. I am so comfortable in the middle of a crowd of 50,000 people, like, mm-hmm. with my hair down, dancing. Yeah. You know, much more comfortable with that than I am here. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, I, I get it. Um, okay, a feral hippie. Yeah, that's, that's probably the first one in here. I, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Maybe I think the first one I've known, oh. ever. And I know, I've known a lot of hippies. Well, I'm just kind of, you know, I just put up this respectable front. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I'm also not a huge fan of labels, but I do think it helps right. us kind of figure out, oh, okay, I see you're into blah, blah, and blah. Right. Well, for a long time, I'm like, admitting in public that you were a deadhead was a death sentence. Uh, I mean, yes. For employers, people just look at you sideways. Yeah. You're unmotivated. You're into drugs. <laughs> all of that. All of those things. They don't go together. You know, mm-hmm. you can be on drugs and be motivated. You know, you can... You can <laughs> <laughs> you can be unmotivated and sober. Yeah, you know that's so true. You can't put them together. That's so yeah. true. And just don't don't put everything into a box because oh. nothing ever fits into these little perfect boxes yeah. except for your chocolates. Right. You have to. Well, you have to design the box around the chocolate. You know, you can't just randomly buy a box and fill uh, it with chocolate. Okay, so we got off course a little bit. I know. You deadhead, you. Um, so you were selling these chocolates. I remember you. Um, I met you in Jacksonville more than a decade ago, and you had chocolate-covered strawberries. Yes. Well, because I was growing strawberries, mm-hmm. and it made sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I mean, those are very popular. Yes. You know, and so, and, and still, we still like to do chocolate-covered strawberries, but I only do them in season. Yes. So, I mean, people, you're smart. <laughs> people always come to me at, like, Valentine's and Christmas. Do you have chocolate-covered strawberries? I go, ew, no. Yeah. Strawberries aren't growing right now, and the um, ones you get in the store are disgusting because yeah. they're not in season. Call me in June. Yeah, you know? come on, people. <laughs> get with it. So, <laughs> so, yeah, you're selling these out of the trunk of your car, much like your tie-dye T-shirts <laughs> right. back in the day. Um, did you? When did you come up with the sea salt caramel? That was probably as I was building more flavor. It wasn't the first flavor I came up with. It was... Uh, as I was doing more research and buying chocolate from other people and checking out that whole thing, it, it became quite obvious that every chocolatier worth his salt right. would make one of those. And this is salted caramel is just part of everybody's lexicon. See, I feel like you kind of, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like you sort of put them on the map. I, I, I was at this perfect aperture of time for somebody to create an artisan chocolate company. And there was a handful of us that were a couple guys that started just a year or two before me and a couple that started right after me. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us are still in business. Yeah. You know, because there was an aperture for that. And we got in before it closed, basically. And I got press. I mean, I'm not a fool. You did. I'm not a fool. So as I, as I was gaining attention and, and trying to figure out how to promote this, it became obvious that I needed to get out of the Rogue Valley 
and get my chocolates in front of other people elsewhere. Okay. So I did all the research I could, and there was this chocolate show in New York City called The Chocolate Show. And I contacted them. <laughs> it's, it's very convenient. Very uh, creative. And so, you know, I inquired, what's it cost to have a booth? You know, how do I get to New York? How do I do this? What is it? It's a trade show, obviously. It's mm-hmm. farmer's market style. You build a booth and you sell stuff. Yeah. But it's in Manhattan. I've never been there. A lot of eyeballs. A lot of eyeballs. A center of the media, mm-hmm. right? So at that time, they had this, like, artisan section, like emerging artist section of the show. And you could just rent a six-foot table instead of a 10 by 10 booth. Sure. And I did that. And that very first year we were there, you know, the media was in that room. And I'm not shy. So, you know, if there's a camera crew coming and there's a PR lady who worked for the thing, and she's like, oh, would you like to talk to Katie Couric? Yeah, I would. Yes, I would. Hello, Katie. Exactly. You know, or, hey, can we give some of your chocolates to Al Roker? You know, yeah, you can. Yeah, please. You know, so it was that kind of thing. And I just wasn't shy. Mm-hmm. So I used the PR firm that handled the chocolate show, and I'm not shy. And I just got my name out there. Mm-hmm. And, and I couldn't keep up with production. I had no idea what I was doing. You, It blew you know? up. It blew up. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I think it was the second year we were there, maybe the third. It was 2006. So it was probably the third year that we'd gone to New York. And it was really expensive. And we never made money. You know, the product got crushed in shipping. The longshoreman would leave it in the snow. I mean, it was just, it was just, there was a nightmare of logistics just to get in that building. Um, But we did it and and I had created the lavender caramel and it was a piece that would, and it was the first piece that we took out and packaged separately, Mm. right? This is like, hey, let's make a little four count box. All by itself. Just these little salted caramels. Let's put a little tag on it, tie a bow. And we'll sell lavender sea salt caramels because at the time I was still making them at home. And we were using lavender from the farm, you know, just lavender bushes that grew on our farm. And I, I sold a bunch of them. You know, people liked them. We gave out samples. People liked them. We sold them all. About two weeks after that show, I got this call from this lady. And she goes, hi, is this Lily Bell Farms? Yeah. Oh, I was at the New York chocolate show and I bought some lavender caramels from you. And I bought this little four count box and my boss really, really liked them. But she wants to know if you make like a one pound box. And I'm like, I could. Who's your boss? Oh, can I guess? Uh Uh-huh. Martha Stewart? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I'm like, okay, how many boxes does she want? And she wanted 500 pounds. 500 pounds? 500 pounds. For what, for herself? Corporate gifts. Oh, Martha. Oh, Martha. And uh, of course I said yes. Of course you did. Of course. I had no idea how we were going to do it, but we did anyway. You just, you go, of course, yeah, we can do that. Then you hang up the phone and then you go, oh, I just pooped my pants. Right, right. (laughs) How am I going to do this with, you know, at that point I had one helper, you know, so it was kind of like, okay, I guess we're going to do this, you know, let's do this. That's awesome. Yeah. She she loves your chocolates. She loved them, and then she used them again. I mean, she called me up the next year and did it again for corporate gifts. She would make this label that said, you know, Omnimedia presents lavender sea salt caramels by Lily Bell Farms chocolates, you know, and I had to put that label on all the boxes. And That's kind of brilliant. Yeah. That's why she's Martha Stewart. It's Yeah. And, and why I, she's a bazillionaire. And, of course, I asked. I'm like, you don't mind if I tell people you're doing this? And they're like, oh, no, Martha loves press. I'm like, oh, good. <laughs> You know? <laughs> wow. So, I mean, that blew up. Yeah, it, it did. became the piece that I have to make every day. All the time. For the rest of my life. Yes. You can never stop making the sea salt caramel. We will never stop. No. no. Well, and that's a good thing because they're delicious. Yeah. 
And they're as good today as they were the exactly first day the you same. made them. Nothing's changed. I know. Nothing. And that's what's brilliant about um, all of your chocolate chocolates, actually. The ones that I fell in love with when you first sort of opened, they taste exactly the same today. Trying. You know, consistency but is key. I mean, it, people want that, that, that sense memory once a year. If they only get them once a year at Christmas, they want it to be that thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel that way still. People are like, oh, your chocolates are expensive. And I'm like, no, they're not. Not for what we do. Yeah. And, you know, I go, they're like C's. And I go, yeah, well, if you're going to C's, could you buy me a box of molasses chips and bring them back? Because <laughs> you know? well, I, I don't know how to make those. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, I think you look at a lot of things that are expensive. But if you look at the work and the love that go into them, then you get it. Why? My, my chocolates, I sell wholesale, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I got a wholesale business. It's very robust. We sell to hundreds of grocery stores now and we're just all over the map. Yeah. And uh, I'm one of the few chocolatiers left that sells his pieces in bulk hmm. in America. I mean, you can just, you know, if you own a chocolate shop and you want to carry five or six flavors of Lily Bell or more, oh, okay. we'll just put them in bulk boxes and Here ship them go. to you. Those chocolates sell for three fifty. All over the country. A piece? Each. Wow. Okay. I get $2 a piece for them in Central Point. Right. Retail. Right. Everybody who sells my chocolate is three twenty-five to three fifty for what I do. Wow. In Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. I mean, I know what they're worth. Exactly. You know, but I think if I raise my price to three fifty, they'd burn my building down in Central Point. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> we'll just keep it right here and I won't retire. It's okay. <laughs> Um, and speaking of the chocolates, I mean, you, we had this conversation when I interviewed you last time. Um, you are very particular about the kind of chocolate. I'm pretty picky. I mean, I, when I started, I had to start at the base, you know, I mean, I, I distinctly remember using, you know, to get a wholesale price on chocolate that you can work with, I would buy, you know, I'd buy Calibo, which is what the Bella Union used to make their desserts, mm-hmm. which I had used years before in restaurants. It's very standard Belgian-style good dark chocolate. Yeah. You know, and I would have to go down to the Bella Union and pick up my 10-pound order at the back door. Ugh. You know, <laughs> I was Shady. just buying 10 pounds of chocolate. Shady deals. Yeah. But as, as my company evolved and grew, and, you know, it took a few years after we got the farm to get it certified organic, which was very important to me. So I spent a couple years making sure that Nothing touched that land, and we got certified organic on our fruit that we were growing. Mm-hmm. It made sense to find organic chocolate. Yes. Right, which there wasn't a lot. There just wasn't. Um, it just wasn't. Uh, and right about that time, it was 2003, 2004, uh, Dagoba moved here, right? I knew Freddie, mm-hmm. and he moved here, and he was having chocolate made for Dagoba by a company in Wisconsin because he was buying organic liquor from companies and having it made. Yes. So then I started buying it through him. And then they sold the Hershey's and they wouldn't sell it to him anymore. Right. And they just wouldn't. So I had to find another source. And at that same time, doing these shows that I would do, I became friends with a lot of people in the industry. Mm-hmm. And I got to know Gary Guitard and that whole family at Guitard in San Francisco and their main sales guy, whom I love to this day. Mm-hmm. And when I first met him in New York, he was like, oh, we don't play with organics. There's no call for that. You know, fast forward four years and he's like, hey, we're beta testing some organic. You want to help us play with it? Nice. Right. And so now they custom manufacture, you know, 30,000 pounds a year for me. Just for you. Yeah. Well, no, they make it for whoever wants to buy it, but I've got a contract for a yes. big chunk of it. That's awesome. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's all about quality and it had to be just right, you know, and they make a really mm-hmm. good chocolate and it's a workhorse. 
And then, what's that, eight years ago, I started making my own chocolate? Awesome. That's That's been an adventure. Mm-hmm. I know it's sweeping the nation now. Everybody's into craft chocolate, but... Yeah. But you were one, getting your own beans. And... I was just one of the pioneers of this stuff. I still don't push it as hard as I should because mm-hmm. no matter how good I make chocolate from scratch, I'll make it as good as some of the big boys. Mm-hmm. I'll never make it as good as Gary Guitar consistently. You know? Right, gotcha. I don't have the equipment. Yeah, you know, it exactly. It takes a lot of really large equipment to make absolutely perfect chocolate. So you got to ramp up and... Then you won't have time to make pretty bonbons, and you know you just won't have time. Or play guitar. Or play guitar. Speaking go, of which, go to concerts. Or yes. Do things. Exactly. Have you, we burned up all your time? No, we have no. all the time in the world. We are oh. going to wrap up a little bit, but you did bring your a guitar with you. I brought a guitar. I don't know. I mean, you I, said you never, you don't go anywhere without it. I don't. I, I always keep one around. Uh, so, we don't talk about how many because I have, I have gas, <laughs> guitar acquisition syndrome. <laughs> You know, I have a few. Much to Belle's chagrin or does she? I, hey, she collects shoes. I collect guitars. Yes, yeah. Belle. That's what I like to hear. So why don't you grab your guitar? There's one other story that I want to okay. tell about you while you while you pull this you out. Mean like how we named the company Lily Bell Farms? Well, I know how. I know how. Yeah. Uh, wife, daughter. Uh, daughter, wife. Daughter, wife. That's what I meant. Lily, Lily Bell. Right. Um, but when I was in your shop last, you were talking to me a little bit about... Um, what was it? The Grateful Dead cassette tapes? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We're the we're the no kill shelter. See, back back when I was a deadhead in the eighties, that's when tape trading really got good because they were yes. one of the few bands that let us tape their shows. Yeah, you record their shows and then right. you can trade them. Now I didn't do that, but there were plenty of tapers and microphones at the shows I went to. And if you got to know the right people, they'd make you a copy or maybe they'd send you a copy of something. Blanks and postage were our lives, right? You'd meet somebody and they're like, yeah, just, you know, mail me blank tapes and enough postage to get it back to you and I'll burn you copies. That's so cool. Hundreds of thousands of us did that. Uh-huh. And that was our technology at the time. Cassettes. Yeah. Well, everybody's digitized and cassette machines are rare, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But we're deadheads and we don't throw anything away. No. So... Any deadhead worth his salt from back then probably is still sitting on several milk crates full of these things. And you've moved with them for 30 years. And your wife will not, you just won't give them up. They're in a closet. They're in the attic. I have a friend in Ashland. They're in his attic in his garage. And you won't give them up. You know, he doesn't play them. But they're treasures. They're oh, for sure. plastic treasures. Yeah. Well, I got on the, you know, online community, the internet, of course, you know, and knew a lot of deadheads and I put this thing out there. It's like, hey, don't throw them in the landfill because somebody was like, I got to get rid of these cassettes. I just, you know, I've digitized everything. Right. I'm like, well, don't. Send them to me. I'll take them. And I put a rack up in my shop (laughs) and I put a sign up that explained the Grateful Dead culture of taping. And if you're wondering what the hoopla is all about, help yourself to a show. Well, since I started that about five or six years ago, I have thousands and thousands of cassettes now. Lots of people have taken me up on this offer. Hmm. So every now and then I just get a random package in the mail that's got a hundred cassettes in it or more. You adopt them out? I adopt them out. (laughs) I give them away one show at a time. That's brilliant. And they're a great little conversation starter. Yeah. You know, a a lot of people come in and they get, I was their itis. You know, they look at the thing and they're like, oh my God. I was at that show at the Frost Amphitheater in 1982. And, and I have to have that tape. And I have to have that. And I've seen, like, you know, this guy's wife was like, honey, you don't own a cassette deck. He goes, oh, buy one, damn it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I was there. You know? That's so cool. So we get a lot of I was there-itis, which is really fun. You know, mm-hmm. you all these people, you wouldn't suspect it by looking at them, that they mm-hmm. were, you know, a feral hippie at one time. Another, all the feral hippies. When did you learn to play the guitar? 
relatively in tune. When I started playing guitar when I was 14. Wow. Yeah. And I asked my dad, I said, give me a guitar. I want a guitar. And he's mm -hmm. like, okay. He got me this really crappy little nylon string guitar. And I was like, that's a really crappy guitar. <laughs> and he goes, you learn how to play the Wildwood Flower and I'll buy you a better guitar. It's a bluegrass song, right? And yes. I immediately learned it. I mean, way too fast for his taste because, you know, I wanted to. You still know it? Uh, no. I don't think so. Dang it. Uh, it'd take me a minute. It would take a minute. Cause, uh, I haven't played that kind of stuff in a long time. June, June Cash sang that, right? That's right. Um, yeah, so what do you play. like to play? I like to play. Well, the last couple years, I do these chocolate festivals, right? And for years, I would go to these chocolate festivals and give presentations about Lily Bell Farms and our process and my story, a lot of what we just went through. And, you know, with a slideshow and all this mm -hmm. stuff of the farm and the products. And, and uh, I really got sick of standing up in front of 200 people and essentially masturbating. You know, just, just flogging myself in front of 200 people. It was just, it got boring. It's old. It's like, oh, I don't want to get up there and just talk about myself. This is annoying. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, I put my feet down on this one festival that I go to. And I said, I will not give a lecture this year. He goes, but people love your lectures. They're always packed. I go, yeah, but they're annoying for me. Right. I go, I want to set up an amp and a microphone, and I'll give away samples because you have to give away samples to all these people. But when you hand out samples to like 200 people in a room, it takes time. Yeah. Even with like three or four volunteers running around with boxes, it takes 10 to 15 minutes for all those people to get one and eat it before you can discuss or you know get some comments or questions. And I thought, well, I could play two or three songs during that 10 to 15 minutes, right? I could do that. And the trick is to try and tie the songs into chocolate. I don't know any songs about chocolate except maybe a Tom Waits <laughs> song, you know. So, but, but, but it became this thing and I did it, I've done it like four times now. Um, people say chocolate equals love. Mm -hmm. I know love songs, but if chocolate equals love, love, you can't have love without pain and you can't have, well, I mean, if chocolate leads to love and love is what it is, then you might have murder and death and suicide and divorce. And True. Just all these things could, you put love at the top and then there's this branching thing that can go all the way to prison. You know, it can just, <laughs> so then I figured out I could do all these songs that kind of sort of not really tie into chocolate because they're about the human condition. So I do a lot of songs about the human condition, but most of them are about dysfunction and family dysfunction and alcoholism and murder. And these are just oh. the kind of songs I like to do. You know, they, 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 You're so perfectly twisted. It's it's weird. I don't. I I don't even like to do Grateful Dead songs. You know, no. I, I can, but I don't. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm more into obscure things that make some of them are really questionable. You know, some of the stuff I like probably can't be played outside of a room that's not 21 and over. Okay, <laughs> play play me a little a little bit of something. I got back in town the day before I'd planned to And I smiled and said I'll sure surprise my wife I don't think I'll phone, I'll just go on home My mind not on those cold hard facts of life I passed a little wine store on the corner I pictured pink champagne by candlelight I stopped the car right then 
got out and hurried in Mind not on those cold hard facts of life Cause the stranger stood there laughing at the counter He said I'd take two bottles of your best Cause her husband's out of town and there's a party Winked as if to say you know the rest Left that store two steps behind that stranger and at my house, his car stayed in sight. But it wasn't till he turned into my driveway that I learned I was witnessing those cold hard facts alive. Drove around the block till I was dizzy. And each time the noise came louder from within. Then I saw that bottle there beside me Drank a fifth of courage and walked in Lord, you should have seen their frantic faces When they screamed and cried, please put away that knife Well, I guess I'll go to hell Or I'll rot here in this cell but who taught who those cold hard facts alive? Is who taught who those cold hard facts of love? Yay, Jeff Shepard! It's a love song. You kind of you guys. Love song. I'm gonna surprise my wife by buying her a box of chocolates. No, that's not it. <laughs> that's uh, that was very John Prine. It was Porter Wagner. Porter Wagner. 1958. Good probably. one. It's just one of those songs about love and murder. Uh, love it. Good old family songs. All right. That was fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. The first ever concert on Off Script. I like it. Okay. We are going to wrap up. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm interesting or not. Yeah. I think you are. Yeah. I think you're beyond interesting. You're 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 perfect for this podcast. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. All right. <laughs> Final three. Best advice you've ever been given. I... I, I knew you were going to ask this question. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had to narrow it down to two. Okay, perfect. There, there were two. And there's one that was really important back in those like early 80s days when things were like really, really crazy. And I was young and completely anxious. And just, I, I, I ended up in a hospital with a bleeding ulcer. Mm. Kind of freaked. I passed out at work. Yikes. Too many late nights. Too many, just really not treating myself well. But I was also just crazed. And I spent some time in there and, you know, they've, did a lot of things and they kept me hooked up to things and eventually this guy came in to talk to me and he wasn't a doctor didn't have the coat on he had more like the tweed coat on and they'd sent a psychologist in to talk to me because i was obviously crazy okay you know and they weren't going to keep me and they were going to kick me and i didn't have insurance and he talked to me for a while and he realized that i probably couldn't spend six months visiting him in his office and on his couch but he needed to help me it was obvious that i needed help mm. and he said i'll be right back and he left and he came back in and he put his hand out and he said, I want you to wear this and I want you to wear it on your chef's coat and I want you to wear it somewhere on your body and live it. And he handed me a button and it said, F it. <laughs> and it was just outstanding advice at the time. You know, it was just the perfect antidote yeah. for being all wrapped up in your own head. Yeah. And don't let those small stuff get to you because 
It's all small stuff. Mm-hmm. Relax. Don't get ulcers. Don't keep. Don't let yeah. it out. Let it out. Um, there's that. And then there was a lecture I went to in the mid '80s by Joseph Campbell, and he basically told us: follow your bliss, mm. find the thing that makes you happy, and follow that. Let that be your guiding light. So for me, it's you know oil painting and playing guitar and creating yeah. food, and that's what I've made a life out of. I love it. Yeah. I have a coffee mug, a daily coffee mug that says, let that go. That's it. That's the nicer way of saying it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just, I look at that and I just go, yeah. Yeah. Because the small things are just not important. Yeah. It's not. It's no, really not. They really aren't. No. They're not, not every day, not in the grand scheme of things. No, no. And I own a business and I get caught up in it and I get, ah, you know, and then I'm like, oh, no, that's not really important. Do you still have that button? No. Oh. No. I think we need to find you one. I don't. I, it's, I think it's tattooed on my upper lip. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you ever left this place, uh, what would bring you back here? What would you miss the most? Not the weather. Not the weather. No. A lot of people say the weather. No. No, I need to live on a beach. Okay. I just need to wear nothing but a sarong <laughs> and sun. Okay. So, so wrong. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so you don't really, you're not really digging this cold, rainy weather right now. Uh, no, this is the time of year where I'm, I'm, I am, I am doing everything in my power not to suck start a shotgun. Okay. It's just not my time of year. Well, what would you miss then? <laughs> I actually, I, I like, I really like Southern Oregon. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, you've got, you've got everything you want here. Okay, you've got these beautiful mountains. You've got these beautiful rivers. You're minutes away from like gorgeous forest. Yeah. Um, I, I would miss that centralized location to all of these things. We're not that far from the coast, although I refuse to get in the ocean in Oregon because it's freezing. It is freezing. It's freezing. Freezing. You know, but it's, I, I, I don't know. I just miss it. Yeah, the beauty. Yeah. Okay. But that doesn't mean if I win the lottery, I'm not moving to the Cook Islands. You know, I'm out of here. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, and finally, this is a tough one for you. Okay. Final meal, final drink. What would that look like? <sighs> it can be whatever you want. I know. I know. And I've eaten in some of the best restaurants on the planet, and it probably wouldn't be any of that. Mm. It, it, it would be... My grandmother's fried chicken. Oh. It would. I love that. It would be my grandmother's fried chicken with, like, her homemade biscuits, you know, with Mm -hmm. the fresh butter and the... Mm -hmm. It would be that. It's a simple meal, but, man, I have her her black cast iron skillet that I inherited, and I still can't make chicken as good as she did. Stop right there. Yes, my grandma has several of those. They're mine. I get them. Like, they will be my cast iron skillets. Heat them up, and you smell her food. Yeah, 80 years of, you know, I mean, they're crusty. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've got those, and I use them every single day at I home. I love that, yeah. Jeff. What was it about her fried chicken? Uh, probably because she raised it and killed it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I helped her do that. You know, real fresh. It was real fresh. <laughs> <laughs> fried chicken, biscuits, and fresh butter. I'm telling you, it does not get any better than that. That's uh, one of my favorite things in the world. Fantastic. All right. Uh, for is... beverage, I, can, I, I just, just good beer. Good beer. I'm a beer guy. Okay. I just love a good beer. Not Budweiser out of a can. Nobody Sorry, Budweiser. Nobody said anything about that being good beer. Well, I mean, they well they are the king of beers. I'll drink it if you pay me. <laughs> <laughs> good old Bubba's, right? That's right. <laughs> All right. 
too much fun. If you're listening to this podcast on iTunes and you like it, please subscribe, rate, and review. It helps other people find us. We are also on Google Play, Stitcher, and you can ask your Alexa app to play Offscript now. You can check out the video portion of this podcast at ktvl.com. Just click on Features and then Offscript. I've known you for a really long time. I've known you're interesting, but this sort of blew my mind a little bit. Good. Thank you. You're welcome. This Thank was you. too fun, Jeff Shepard. Thank you. <laughs>